Yippee-ki-yay, mother lovers. I'm back. But not like back, back, not season two back yet. That is coming, but this is not that. This is just a one-off quarantine interim episode. I asked people what they wanted to hear about, thinking that maybe they were tired of hearing of the doom and gloom of the daily news, but it turns out, like often happens, I was wrong. People do want to hear about that. Most people who responded asked for an episode about the plague. So, you know, who am I to deprive people of what they ask for? Here you go. Here's a plague episode. But before I go too far into it, I do have a little request. When I'm not yelling at people about history, I am a tattooer. Currently, the whole COVID situation has my entire industry shut down. I want to continue making this podcast, but it does take a lot of time and effort. Right now, that time and effort could be spent doing things like making commissioned paintings and anything like that to try to scrape a little bit of money together. But instead, I wanted to give you guys a fun episode to kind of distract everyone while all this bullshit is going down. If you're one of those people who are lucky enough to still be working full-time from home or whatever, and you still have money coming in, and you listen to this episode and think, God damn, that was cool, Jonathan. Thanks for doing that. First off, you're welcome. Second off, you can feel free to send a donation of any kind you want. It doesn't have to be anything major. It can be a dollar. I don't care. To repeatinghistorypodcast at gmail.com via PayPal. For those of you who don't have any money to spare right now, don't worry. The episode's still free. I want y'all to hear it. I want y'all to listen. But if you want to help out, you can give it a rating, you could review the podcast, or you could share it with some friends. Anything like that is helpful for me. So please, please, please do that at the very least. If you can donate, cool. If not, also cool. Who cares? Let's learn some shit, huh? My name is Jonathan Penchoff, and you are listening to Repeating History. History, 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 history. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Sort of. This, like I said, this isn't, you know, season two yet, so it's kind of just a little filler episode. Don't get too excited. Did you miss me? Did you miss my jokes? Did you miss my missed jokes? Did you miss my voice? Did you miss the smell that you imagined me to have? Well, I missed all of those things from you guys. I'm really excited to be doing this episode. I didn't think it was going to be on the plague, honestly. I, I kind of assumed that when I asked people what they wanted to hear about, it was going to be something funny. I thought maybe it would be, you know, some lighthearted event. But no, you guys wanted to hear about the fucking plague. Probably the most depressing thing that's ever happened to humans as long as we've been recording history. Whew, you guys are a somber bunch. Anyway, here I am. I'm recording it. I I had a lot of fun researching this episode, and I learned a lot. There's a lot of stuff I didn't really know about the plague. You kind of just have this assumption that it's going to be, you know, 
the the bubonic plague and everyone gets these bubos and then people touch it because they're idiots and then they die, which is true, but there's a lot more to it. And I hope by the end of this episode, you guys are as well-informed as I am, which is moderately informed. So that's a good starting off point. You guys can research more on your own. If I had to sum up the Black Plague in one sentence, you know, my my general thesis statement, I would say that God was punishing mankind for not worshiping him hard enough. (laughs) I can't even hold it together to make that fucking joke. Damn it. He gave men the Black Plague the same way that he gave them the Great Flood. Okay, for those of us who don't buy that fairy tale, uh, you know, there is a better explanation to why this all happened. The Black Plague, the Black Death, the Great Mortality, the Great Pestilence, these are all names that are used to describe the events that took place in Western Europe in 1346. It's called that because the overall vibe of the time was dark and ominous, not because the buboes were black in color, which is a common misnomer. I mean, yes, sometimes they probably did have a dark color, but the term black death actually came years and years later when people were writing about the events later in history. Now, you've probably heard it called the bubonic plague, which is not not correct. It's just a little bit misleading because it doesn't have all of the information. While I was researching this, I found out for the first time in my life that there are actually three types of plague that were ravaging the world at this time. One, bubonic plague. Two, pneumonic plague. And three, septicemic plague. These are all coming from the same bacterium known as Yersenia pestis. They're named after the dude who discovered it. The bubonic plague involves buboes. These are like pus-filled boils, essentially. They tend to happen in the groin and the armpits, not generally the place that you want pus-filled boils. This form of the plague takes one to seven days to start showing symptoms, It is very painful. Now, the interesting part about this one is it has a whopping 18% survival rate. So, you know, you got to ask yourself, do you want to live through this very, very painful experience for an 18% chance of survival? Not me. Fucking end it, you know? If I started to show those symptoms, just take me out. Let's not prolong the experience when I'm probably going to die anyways. The second form of the plague that I mentioned is pneumonic. Now, this has to do with your lungs the same way that pneumonia. That's a good way to remember. Um, This version of the plague is fucking awful. Like, when I found out about this one, it blew my mind. This is a severe lung infection that acts very fast. This form is said to go to work in as little as 24 hours. Imagine that. You could start your day feeling absolutely fine, and then by the time you're going to bed, your bed is your 
deathbed. The reason that I said the bubonic plague had a whopping 18% survival rate is because this version has less than 1% survival. So not only when you get it, you can pretty much say, oh fuck, I'm about to die, but you can also say, oh fuck, I'm probably about to die very soon, very painfully. What's gonna happen is you're essentially gonna choke to death on your blood filling your lungs. Yup, that's right. You're gonna drown in your own blood. This is like a cannibal corpse song. <laughs> it's not gonna be a good time for you. For the record, I'm not saying that cannibal corpse isn't gonna be a good time. Some, some people really like them. I mean, I used to think some of their songs were pretty tight, but what I'm saying is the pneumonic plague is not gonna be a good time for you. Certainly, even if you can't stand listening to Cannibal Corpse, this version of the plague is going to be worse. Cleaning up the batting order, the third and final version of the plague that we're going to discuss today is septicemic plague. Now, this one is an infection of your actual blood. It essentially causes clotting issues that can lead to you bleeding out under your own skin. It's the least common form of plague at the time, but it still happened and it still fucked people up for sure. Similar to the pneumonic variation, it has less than 1% survival rating. Okay, the first bit of information has been digested. If it hasn't, shame on you. Rewind, re-listen, and then catch back up with us and let's continue onward, okay? You might ask, Jonathan, how did this plague even happen? Like, what, what happened if it wasn't God being angry? Well, the answer, my friends, is fleas and rats. And rats and fleas and rats and fleas. Tons of them. The black rat flea. Well, that's the commonly accepted version, at least. There are other variations where, you know, people suggest that the plague actually came from outer space, but I'm not going to entertain those today. Today, we are just going to talk about the most widely accepted version, and that is fleas. To give you an idea of how this happens, I have to kind of go into how a flea's digestive system works, which is something I never thought I would have to describe to a group of people who I don't know. Rodents carry the plague. When a flea jumps onto that rodent who is carrying the plague and bites into it to suck its blood, it takes in some of the plague as well. But what happens is it starts to coagulate in the throat of the flea throat is, you know, whatever. We're generalizing. I don't, I'm not going to name all the exact parts of a flea for you. You guys can look that up if you're interested enough. The flea bites it and it starts to coagulate inside the flea's throat. It continues to try to feed on the rat, but now it can't suck in the blood that it needs. When that host dies, if it's hungry enough, the flea will attach itself to a human or any, anything else, you know, whatever is around, but sometimes a human. When it gets onto the human, it tries to feed, like normal, by biting in, 
and it starts to kind of panic a little and starts biting harder and harder to try to get a better flow of blood. At some point, the flea recognizes that there's something clogging its throat and it regurgitates that blood so it can clear a path. So essentially what it does is it pukes plague-infested blood into the new host. Sometimes that happens to be a human, and that is how humans got the plague. By puke. Blood puke. Man, everything kind of sounds like a Cannibal Corpse song. Whatever. By the way, if you haven't listened to Cannibal Corpse and I keep making this reference and you don't know what it is, pause this real quick, go on Apple or Spotify or whatever, and just give it a quick listen, then you'll understand. Also, take a second to look at the song titles because that's really what I'm talking about here. Anyway, now we've covered how plagues spread to humans and the three different forms of it, so we have that as a backboard for the rest of the story. There is a little bit more information that I think is important to share before we get into the story, though, and that is the general lifestyle of an average person in the early 1300s. It kind of helps explain why the plague was able to spread the way it did, and it also helps explain why the post-plague world ended up shaping itself into something different. That seems a little enigmatic right now, but hopefully by the end of this podcast, you'll be able to go, oh, that's what he was talking about. The socioeconomic landscape of the 1300s is sort of like a giant pyramid scheme. At the top, the most narrow point, that's all nobles and lords. You know, those are the well-to-do rich people, pretty much. Underneath them is religious figures. These are the monks. These are the people who are writing the Bibles and passing out the word of God. Underneath them are the workers and the peasants. These are your average Joes. And there's a lot of them. That's why they're the base of this pyramid. They're essentially holding up the whole thing. But people don't really recognize that. They kind of take it for granted. Now, there's one other class that I think is worth talking about, and that is the merchant class. At this time, it's kind of starting to make its way into this pyramid, and it's disrupting it a little bit. They are now, the merchants are now above the religious figures, but underneath the nobles. But they're starting to make a lot of money trading and selling their goods, so it's kind of blurring the line between noble and merchants, and, you know, rich people generally don't want other people to succeed, so, you know, obviously they're not very pleased about this. The merchant class is not looked on highly by the nobles. The peasant class is made to stay there. They are not supposed to rise up. If you were a blacksmith, chances are your father was a blacksmith. And even higher chances, your son will be a blacksmith because that's how it worked. If you were a farmhand, your son will be a farmhand. You get it? They do not want you to succeed. The peasant class is meant to stay at the base and hold up the pyramid unbeknownst to them. The buffer between the uber-rich and the lower-class peasants is the religious class. Now, these people in the 1300s are, like, super-religious. 
the kind of religious that when you hang out with them and you talk about anything, it's safe to assume that they're relating it to the Bible. Yikes. Pretty much the whole point of being alive at this time was to serve the Lord. There is only one version of Christianity at this time, and that is Catholicism. And it is growing by the day. The church is gaining power monetarily and positionally in the ranking of the general public. And this is something that will be an underlining theme of this episode, so just remember those facts, okay? Now that we have a general understanding of how the people were living and how the plague was spread, let's get into the actual story. Like I said before, the year is 1346 when this shit really starts to pop off. It's commonly believed that the way that this was brought to Western Europe was by the Mongols coming from China. Now, I think there's an interesting parallel to draw between the current situation of COVID coming from China, or originating there at least as we understand it, and the Black Plague also coming from there. What I really find interesting is this is not the only parallel that we're going to be able to draw between the two. So the Mongols are traveling on old trade routes made by Alexander the Great, which, as a quick side note, is awesome because it just goes back to the whole thing about history all being one linear path, and it's, it's super cool, but that's not the point of this podcast right now. The point of this podcast is the Mongols are traveling on those trade routes, and they're somehow not being decimated by the plague while on the move. But then they stop at this place that they used to inhabit called Kaffa. The year, like I said, is 1346, and they start to try to take the town again. It is currently being held by some Italian people from Genoa. Now, I should say that when I mention Italy right now, it's kind of like a bunch of independent city-states of Italy. Um, They all kind of have their own autonomy. Um, But anyway, the Genoese are holding the town of Kaffa. While the Mongols are camped outside of the town, getting ready to do their siege and building their siege engines and all that, the plague catches up to them, and they start to drop like flies. Before they're even fighting, the numbers are dropping drastically, and they know something's wrong. People inside of Kaffa start to say things like, oh, God is on our side, you know, like, he's smiting down the evil people, blah, 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 blah. But the Mongols are fucking awesome. They're awesome for so many reasons. And one of these days, I would love to do a whole season just about the Mongol Empire and how fucking cool they are. But anyway, once again, I'm getting sidetracked. The Mongols are badass. They start to say, well, we're all being taken out here and they're not even doing it to us, but they're claiming victory, sort of. So what do they do? Oh, a little bit of biological warfare. They start putting some of the dead soldiers of the Mongols into catapults and trebuchets and launching them over the walls of Kaffa. Now, the streets of Kaffa are fucking covered in dead Mongols. What do you think is on those Mongols? Fleas infected with plague. And they have buboes that are popping and the fucking pus inside them is getting on other people. 
the Genoese start to see what's happening and they're like, we got to get the fuck out of here. So they get on their boats and they bail. They go home. So the next place that the plague goes is Italy. That's another interesting parallel from China to Italy, the plague and COVID. Both of them travel in the same path, which is very interesting to me. By the time that the Genoese dock, they're starting to show symptoms. But, you know, it's obviously too late at that point. They go to get treated, and all they're really doing is spreading it. So Italy, the port cities of Italy, like Genoa, become infested. And then it moves inward. But I do have one interesting side note. Milano was not affected as much because they weren't trading by ship. It was all over over land trading. So that was like one part of Italy that really just wasn't affected in the first wave of plague, which is pretty interesting. I'm not going to go too far into that because, you know, where do you end a thing like this? You know, I could go into the multiple multiple waves of plague and all the places that were untouched for a while, but then eventually got touched, and it gets a little unnecessary. So Italy, for the most part, is now being completely overrun because soldiers from Genoa docked and started spreading the infection. Now, one thing that you might wonder is, how come the people weren't all dead by the time they landed at Genoa? This is an interesting thing that I learned while researching this. Generally, the distance that would take you 23 days to travel by foot could be done in seven days by horse and one by sea. So a lot of the people weren't even showing symptoms until they were about to be docking at Genoa. So they didn't really know. They thought they were, they were outrunning the plague. They didn't really know that they were bringing it back with them. So the port cities are the first to be hit, and then the plague works its way in through trade routes. Now, this is mostly happening through that previously mentioned merchant class. So not only are they fucking up the social ladder, but they're going to start fucking up towns now. And it's a cool time to be alive generally because now you can start having little interminglings with, you know, countries that are nearby And you can get cool things that maybe you couldn't get in your own homeland. But now, well, now those things are going to kill you. So it's not that cool. Generally, the plague moved from south to north and east to west. It starts in Italy, moves to France, England, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Poland, Finland. And eventually, it even made its way to Greenland. Now, I could spend a little bit of time going into details about how each country was dealing with it and how each different country was generally in the same range of people dying percentage-wise, but that's kind of boring. And at a certain point, a lot of those numbers just kind of feel like extra information that's not actually that, like, impactful. We know that the pestilence killed a lot of people, so I don't need to harp on about how everybody died. But I do think it's good to go over some general numbers for a minute just so you can understand how severe it really was. 
Eurasia has suggested death toll of somewhere between 75 to 200 million people. That's roughly 50% of the people who were living there at the time. Imagine if half of the people that you've met in your life died in the span of a few years. It would be fucking hectic. Also, not only are just 50% of the people you know dead, but they're just dead in the streets. Imagine opening the door to your house and seeing someone who was just walking past and just died in front of your door. Or worse yet, imagine opening the door and seeing that the neighbor's dog is chewing on the fucking neighbor in the streets. It's, it's wild. Times are not so chill. It can be hard to make that sound that impactful because at a certain point, it's just so many fucking people and it's so many numbers that it feels like more of a statistic than anything that has any, like, you know, emotional response. So, to make it so, you know, this, this young, cool, hip generation will understand, the plague was like a slow, really painful, stinky, gross version of Thanos snapping his fingers while wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. Hey, modern pop culture reference. Although the plague didn't have any natural guidance system on who to attack, everybody was dying similar percentages, but not entirely equal. The nobility was dying at a rate of only roughly 25%, while the peasants at the bottom of our pyramid were dying at 40 to 80%. Now, some people suggest that the reason that the nobles weren't dying quite as much is that their houses were made of stone, so the rats had a harder time getting into their house, so there weren't as many plague-infested rodents coming in. Also, generally, they could afford to eat a little better and had a potentially stronger immune system. And also, also, lastly... Some of them, when things started getting shitty, just bailed to, like, their other property in the woods, so they kind of quarantined themselves, you know? But if we're thinking back in the terms of the pyramid scheme, the top class of nobles and lords actually had significantly less members than the bottom class of peasants. So there were more peasants who were left dead from the plague than any other class, but there's still so many more of them than there are of the, the nobles. This created an interesting effect on how the world worked. Less workers in every trade led to people being able to charge for their services. Now these peasants, who, you know, once were, were just lucky to be farmhands, were able to go, hey, I know that you need your farm taken care of now, and you're certainly not going to do it, but it's dangerous for me, and there's not a lot of people who are willing to do it. So now, I'm going to need that money, son. They wanted that bread, probably literal bread, and also money bread. And if the nobles didn't want to pay them, well, all the peasant had to do was walk down the road and find the next noble who needs help because certainly most of their peasants are dead and they need people to be taking care of their land. The pyramid scheme is starting to get wobbly. The people at the bottom are starting to look up top and say, what the fuck is going on, guys? And not just to the nobles. The people at the bottom are starting to look at the religious figures and saying, hey, guys, uh, wh what did we do wrong? Like, 
you guys are being punished too, so certainly this isn't just a holy and unholy situation because you holy men are also still dying. So, what the fuck? And people are real confused. Most of them start to turn to God and just assume that they've sinned, and they have sinned big time, because something like this certainly was brought on by just, I don't know, the whole fucking world being filled with assholes, and now they're going to get, you know, the shit end of the stick for it. But some of them decided that maybe it wasn't really their fault. It wasn't, we didn't do anything wrong. Certainly I'm a pretty good guy, so why would God do this? Someone else had to have done this. Who could it be? Well, who do you think they blamed? The same people that have taken the blame over and over throughout history. And this certainly, as anyone knows, wouldn't be the last time. The people of the 1300s started to blame the plague on the Jews. They said that the Jews were poisoning the wells and that they were spreading the plague intentionally, which is fucking bananas, and we'll get to that in a second. If you're anything like me, you might find yourself questioning right now, why the fuck are the Jews always being messed with? Why are they always the scapegoat? Why are they always persecuted? Well, I decided to start looking into it, and I can't say for certainty that this is, you know, the the path that leads to persecution all the time, but at this time in the 1300s, the Jews were given jobs like money lending, things that were considered to be kind of unholy. The Christians of the time didn't want these jobs because it wasn't like natural or nice or cool or whatever to loan money and make money off of other people for doing no work. So they give this job to the Jews. The Jews now are, you know, in a powerful position in that they can lend out money and receive it back. But this also puts them in a pretty shitty situation because now if someone defaults on their loans, these are the people who have to go knock on the door and say, excuse me, motherfucker, you owe us this money plus this much money, or, hey, you weren't able to pay the money that you were supposed to give us, so now we're taking some of your things. This makes them generally disliked, to put it nicely. A lot of people were, were cool with it. They understood the business, but a lot of people also, mostly Christians, found this to be uh, not a very cool practice, and it, it put the Jews in a position of being able to be the scapegoat, if that makes sense. So when things started going wrong, i.e. the plague starts hitting, these Christians who are unwilling to look themselves in the mirror and say, clearly I'm fucking up here, decide that they need someone else to, to blame it on, you know? And who do they blame? The person who they dislike. The people that they probably owe money to. So they start putting out all this stuff that the Jews are, 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 are spreading the plague by poisoning the wells. A ton of places end up gathering their Jews together and killing them. Eventually, the Pope goes, hey, you guys are fucking stupid. The Jews are dying at a similar rate as us. 
Like, it doesn't make sense for them to poison themselves as well. And also, the towns that people have been killing their Jewish communities in are still being infected by the plague afterwards. So your logic is flawed, friends. And then the Christians had to go, oh, shit. All right, well... All right, well, then what did we do to deserve this? And now they're being forced to accept that they are the problems and that they are being punished by God, which is, you know, also pretty stupid. Imagine being a Jewish person in the 1300s and trying to avoid the plague and you're just like, oh, shit, this is already pretty bad. And then one day all of a sudden it's like, Oh, also, we think you're responsible for it, so now we want to kill you, too. What the fuck, man? That that sucks. <sighs> These guys, give them a break. Now, they say that misery likes company. But I think you could argue with a pretty good case that stupidity likes company. One group of people, you know, persecuting another group because they owed them money. And then... There's this class of people who started to accept that it wasn't the Jews, it was them. It was all of mankind who was being punished. And to, to make up for it, to, to try to help ease the, the pain of the people, they were going to put themselves in some pain. That's right. We're talking about the self-flagellation movement. Not flatulation, where they're farting all the time, which would be pretty funny. <laughs> what are you doing to help fight the plague? Well, I've been farting day and night. <laughs> Stupid. Now, these people were whipping themselves. They would walk down the streets and preach the word of God in, you know, nothing but a loincloth and beat the fuck out of themselves until they were bloody bloody messes of humans, which, you know, let's say one of those people have the plague and they're whipping themselves with this whip and then the next person whips themselves with a whip as well and it has the blood of the first person on it. Well, I think that you are being punished for your stupidity and not your sins. <sighs> anyway, that movement is also said to be stupid by the Pope. The Pope distances himself from that group of Christians and is like, yo, um, those, those guys aren't like us. Like, we're not all like that. So I, I don't condone it. Don't, don't whip yourself. It's not going to help the plague end. The Pope at the time is a dude named Pope Clement VI. Now, he actually distances himself from everybody at one point, he is the first guy who really, really got on board with social distancing. He was told by some professionals of the day and age that to avoid getting the plague, he should lock himself into a room between two fires and just kind of chill in the middle because the heat would keep him safe. Uh, you know, I don't think the heat did anything about it, but it certainly, you know, kept him away from other people who were infected. So once again... Similarities, social distancing, it works. It saved the Pope. So some people blame the Jewish community. Some people blame themselves and punish themselves accordingly. 
And then there's this last group of people who I connect with on a real, very real level. They saw it as the world is ending. Most people are going to die. Most of the people I know have died. I'm probably going to die soon, and so are you. So, yeah, you could turn to God and ask for forgiveness for whatever imaginary sins you've piled upon yourself. Or you could say, fuck it, let's party. And that's what this group of people did. They just said, everything is fucked, let's just do what we want. And they lived out the rest of their days just having a good time. And, man, I just... I'm so on board for that. If things get really shitty here in any any near future when I'm alive, you can fucking bet your bottom dollar that I am going to be one of those people who's just doing whatever the fuck I want. That got a little dark. So it's fair to say that by this point in the podcast, we all understand and recognize that the plague was fucked. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty generalized, simplified version of it, but it's true. You know, all of your loved ones are probably going to die soon. You're probably going to die soon. You can look to God, but you're still going to die soon. You can whip yourself in the back, but you're still going to die soon. Or you could do whatever the fuck you want but you're still probably going to die soon. So it makes you start to wonder, what did these people do to, to avoid that? Like, how, how were they adjusting their lives to not die soon? You have to keep in mind that this is a time in the, in the history of mankind where we just didn't know about germs. We didn't understand that kind of thing. We didn't have antibiotics to help treat this kind of thing. So people start to kind of change their lives just a little bit here and there to try to, you know, save themselves. Previously, when someone in your family died, you would generally keep their clothing because clothing at this time was all handmade and it was expensive and you didn't want to just get rid of that. So let's say your sister dies in a shirt that you like. So you... Take that shirt for yourself afterwards. But here's the catch. It has fucking plague all over it. So now you have plague-infested clothing that you're wearing. Obviously, that's going to be problematic. So at this time, people started to understand like, hey, you know what? I don't need that shirt that bad. And they start to like burn the shirts. Now, a lot of people used to do uh, you know, independent burials of the stuff, but it was happening so fast that they had to do mass graves. And when they're doing mass graves, there are some people walking through the streets collecting the dead and wheeling them to a mass grave. And then several people are digging these graves and carefully lining the bodies, putting a little soil on top, and then, you know, burying the next line of people. By doing this, all these people are in close contact with the plague itself. So a lot of these people start to get infected. So they started to do things that would distance themselves. You know, kind of like social distancing. Wink, wink. People started to abandon their loved ones who were getting sick to try to help save themselves. 
Some of the things that I was reading often spoke of how atrocious it was that parents would abandon their children. Yes, sure, that's not cool. But really, wouldn't you? What is it going to do if you spend that time with your kid who's certainly going to die if it just means that you're going to die too? Like, there's not really a reason to do that. So, I don't know. I I don't think it's that appalling. I, I think that that's fine. Obviously, I am not a parent. The people in Milan who were spared from the first wave, when a family would get infected, the rest of the town would, like, brick them in. They would, they would shut their house down from the outside. They would lock the whole family in, and that whole family would die. But it didn't spread to the community. So they're starting to do quarantine, which, coincidentally, is based from an Italian word, meaning 40 days, like 40 days separated. That was what quarantine was. Now, one of the other things that people didn't really understand aside from germs is how things were spread. They thought that the plague was spread through bad smells. And you can imagine how smelly this time was just in general. There is literally trash and feces and piss just in the streets. There's dead bodies from the plague littering the streets, just starting to rot. That's going to be a very smelly time. So, people started to do things to try to get rid of the smell because that's what they thought was going to get them sick. One of the things that people started to do was they created what's known as a plague doctor mask. Now, if you don't know what that looks like, pause this, go look on the Google, and check it out. It kind of looks like a bird. Now, what these masks were for was in that long beak-like apparatus, they would put herbs and flowers and things that smelled good in front of their face so that when they were dealing with the people who were infected by the plague, they didn't have to deal with the smells. By doing this, they actually created distance between themselves and the infected and kind of accidentally slowed down the process. They thought they were not inhaling the bad smells, and that's what was keeping them safe. But in reality, they were just keeping a further distance. So, you know, they kind of accidentally got it right. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of people have died at this point. So there's less people in the streets. There's less people in the streets. There's less contact with sick people. People are starting to keep their distance. There's kind of a theme going on here. It's not that surprising. You might not be so shocked to hear that the accepted theory of what stopped the spread of plague was quarantine. Just like today, just like we're trying to do right now, we're trying to do the whole quarantine thing. And, you know, I'll be honest. In the beginning of this whole COVID thing, I was one of the people who thought that quarantine was kind of stupid. I thought maybe if we all just wash our hands and, you know, aren't hanging out in giant groups together, that would be enough. And, you know, who am I to say that it is? I'm not a fucking doctor. I don't really know. But historically speaking, quarantine works. So take from that what you will, but whatever. 
The first wave of plague lasted until about 1353. Now, I won't go into all of the other waves that came afterwards because none of them really had the same virulence as the first wave, but they probably fucked with people more on a mental level after the first wave. Imagine this. Imagine that everything that you know has changed. All of the people that you used to love are dead. Your whole town is wiped out to 50% of what it was. Then it seems like things are starting to get okay again. Everything's kind of starting to go back to normal. Everything is, you know, you're not, you're not forgetting necessarily about the plague, but it's not a daily concern for you anymore. And then let's say 10 years pass and you now have new kids who are out in your fields working and everything's cool. And then all of a sudden you hear that there's another sickness coming around like the one that happened 10 years ago. And you remember that 10 years ago, you lost your whole family. You lost your last kid that you had. That's going to be pretty fucked up for your head. And then it happens again in like 10 more years. It's pretty wild. Like I said, none of them really decimated the population the same that the first wave did, but they still caused major problems. It took up to 200 years to get back to pre-plague levels in Western Europe. That's pretty mental. Now, obviously, the plague is like one of the worst things that's happened to mankind, maybe ever. But one could argue, and I'm about to, that it wasn't all bad. A lot of good things came out of it, too. Things that are hard to quantify, you know, like, like art. Geoffrey Chaucer lived through the plague and wrote about it. The dude who wrote Canterbury Tales. This is the dude who's known as the father of English literature. He lived through the plague. That's something that we got through it, right? That's kind of cool. And then some of the art, just the paintings. There's a common motif of death personified as a skeleton dancing with a group of people. And the group usually includes all variations of that pyramid scheme we talked about previously. A king, a peasant, a holy man, you know, a child. And the idea is that death was coming for all of them and he was dancing with them. The children's rhyme, Ring Around the Rosie, that's supposedly about the plague. Ring around the rosy, pockets full of posy. They're holding the posies. They got them in their pockets, and it's, it's to block the smell, like I said before about the plague doctor mask. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the plague dropping them one at a time. Death was coming for all of them, so much so that they, they lightheartedly made children's rhymes about it. Now, one piece of art that I've seen with my own eyes that is just fucking fantastic is in Dusseldorf. It's a it's it's a sculpture of like a carriage that's filled with people and then wrapping around it is these like I think there's several skeletons wrapping around it and they're reaching and they're like taking hold of certain people in the in the caravan. And it's just absolutely masterful. 
It's beautiful. It's terrifying. It's so dark. And it's just so, so beautiful. So art and things like literature and sculptures and paintings and stuff like that also come from this. And that's something that human beings are really good at. You know, anytime there's a tragedy, we we generally kind of use art as a therapy through it. And this is no exception to that. It's kind of nice. Um, I know that right now a lot of people in in my profession in tattooing are are using art as a way to not only supplement income as not being able to tattoo right now, but also it's a nice way to kind of like help people. You know, all these people who are quarantined are using Netflix and stuff like that as a way to to help deal with the daily thing. So in times of trouble, people turn to art. And that's important to remember. Obviously, people from the 1300s didn't have Netflix or Pornhub to get them through their quarantines. But, you know, they had paintings and children's rhymes, which I guess also worked. But there was work to be done then. They didn't get to be completely quarantined. A lot of people died. So a lot of the land was not being taken care of and they needed grains to eat. The price of cattle went down super low because there were a ton of just wild cattle roaming around. People died and other people couldn't take care of theirs. So there's just an abundance of livestock roaming around. The price of grain skyrockets because now there's not a lot of people to do the work. So not as much grain is being made. They need to be, you know, trying to, it's a supply and demand kind of situation. So It's not being made readily enough, so the price goes up. Eventually, this all kind of balances back out. But overall, it actually was kind of a good thing for the era, you know. A lot of, um, a lot of like, low, lower-class workers were starting to make real money for their work, which is pretty cool. The classes were starting to blend a little bit. Some things that sucked more than others was a lot of trades, like specific trades usually involves a long apprenticeship to make happen. Well, you know, if the blacksmith in your town dies, you can't learn to be a blacksmith anymore. So now you got to go try to be a blacksmith in another town. Or maybe you don't get the sufficient training that you need. So a lot of special trades suffered because of this. Earlier in this episode, I said that the socioeconomic landscape was going to change by the end of the plague. Some ways that it has changed now that we're done talking about all this is people initially were really into God and religion. After the plague, people had to question their faith. The social structure of the pyramid scheme we talked about has been shaken up drastically. People on the bottom are now making more money and kind of The people up top have to respect them a little bit more. The merchant class is really starting to blend more with the noble class at this point, even intermarrying. One major obvious one is there's 50% less people. You know, that will shake up the landscape a little bit. The people who are alive, I think it's fair to assume, probably have a deeper appreciation for the fact that they are alive and they did survive this major catastrophe. The important thing to remember is that over a long enough timeline, everything got back to normal and then got better. And even with all this COVID shit, it's kind of the same. 
Like right now, yeah, we're all bored. We're all just starting to deal with quarantine a little bit. Everyone's doing their own thing. And it's kind of a bummer. But things are going to be okay. They always are. Time is the great equalizer. But then again, so is pestilence. Hmm. Initially, I was going to end the podcast right there. But I didn't like how negative it was, so I decided to add in one more positive little note. After all of this, women, for the first time in large numbers, were deciding not to have children. They inherited a bunch of money and land and livestock, all from their dead husbands, you know, and they just didn't need to get remarried or have a bunch of kids to be happy, which is fucking tight. Unfortunately, then, even more than now, and, you know, generally throughout all of history, men are uncomfortable with women having freedom and power, so this didn't last very long. But maybe, after this whole COVID situation, women will make another little jump. Maybe, just maybe, somehow, they'll get paid the same as their male counterparts, which would be, you know, pretty cool. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. I hope that that was at least entertaining to an extent, and hopefully, like I said, you are on the same level as me when it comes to knowledge of the plague, which is moderate. Um, once again, if you guys felt that that was a cool enough episode that you want to donate a little bit of money um, to continue the podcast going, that would be amazing. The PayPal that you can send it to is just repeatinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate it so much if you do. If you can't, not the end of the world. Maybe give the show a rating or a review or share it with some friends. Do what you can, when you can, if you can. I love you all. I hope you're staying safe out there. I hope you're having a good time by yourself with this whole social distancing, catching up on some cool books or something. I don't know. Have a good fucking day. My name is Jonathan Penchoff, and you have been listening to Repeating History. This episode was written and produced by me, Jonathan Penchoff. Theme music composed by Dave Regan. <laughs>